Well, hi there and welcome to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. And I want to thank you so much for being here and being a proactive parent to get the resources that you need for your child. To remember that the definition of recovery is to regain health and children all over the world are regaining their health and recovering from the symptoms of autism as my son once did. And uh, and I was told to drug him and that uh, that recovery was not possible, but I didn't want to believe that and I wanted to keep researching. So I also wanted to find the natural resources to find what I could do to recover his biology. And that is how my son recovered from his symptoms. And I share this all with you uh, in these resources from my website. And then I also have a free online workshop available for you where I explain the four stages to naturally recover from the symptoms of autism. Stage one, healing the gut. Stage two, natural heavy metal detoxification. Stage three, clearing the co-infections, mold, Lyme, and strep. You've heard us talk about those in past episodes. And stage four is brain support and repair. So you can register right now at naturally recovering autism com forward slash free workshop and that is available for you. I'm also really excited about today's episode. I'm glad that you're here with us because we will be talking today about SNPs or genetic SNPs and the susceptibility of the, the genetics behind autism. And we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Kender Becker-Masante, and uh, she is an integrated physician practicing for over 10 years. She is Connecticut's 4A specialist. That counts for asthma, autism, allergies, and atopy, which is eczema. She holds an, excuse me, she holds an ND naturopathic degree and an MS in uh, she's a board certified in both areas. Her specialties include MTHFR for fertility and the treatment of the forays. Dr. Becker focuses on primarily treating the pediatric population and their parents. Dr. Becker is adjunct faculty at two prominent universities where she teaches concussion education to physicians and precept students, doctors, and nurse practitioners. Dr. Becker, Becker lectures all over the country on topics such as autism, the immune system, MDHFR, and genetic mutations that have health implications and keeping healing in the home. Dr. Becker, Becker is the author of A Delicious Way to Heal the Gut and released her second book, All You Can Eat, in May of 2018. Dr. Becker was chosen as one of Connecticut's top naturopathic doctors. Dr. Becker, welcome and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Karen. It's so nice to to be in a like-minded community and be able to just, you know, help people heal and recover their kids. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and we're, you know, primarily the audience here are parents of children with autism, and they are here to find those resources to help their kids. So um, these might be subjects, you know, we might be talking about something they've never heard about before. Um, and these genetics, the SNPs are really, really fascinating. And and I know that that, that made me brand new to, to some of our listeners. So if you could maybe just start with what are SNPs or SNPs? Sure. So SNPs or SNPs, as we call them, are what are uh, it's a, an abbreviation for single nucleotide polymorphism, which uh, you know in general terms really means natural normal biodiversity that we see in our population. However, but because of the way that we live now, particularly in America, I just read a statistic today that said that we uh, the U.S. is five percent of the population, but we consume sixty percent of the pharmaceuticals in the world, mm-hmm. and so that's a big part of, of what's 
going on in our society is the overwhelming toxicity between drugs and environment and everything else are things that implicate our DNA and can change our reactions, which are, are physiologically normal for us to a variety of things. And so we look at SNPs because it gives us an opportunity to look at how genes express in a human body and how that an individual gene expression affects that, the health in that particular individual. So if we have an idea of which genes are turned on or turned off or which genes are expressed in, in an individual or a child, then we can help target and precisely dictate, you know, the best and most optimal healing trajectory for that child. So it makes a huge difference, particularly in autism recovery, because we can look at different genes, see if they've been turned on or turned off, or if there's a genetic predisposition in a family to have, you know, an impaired ability to detox or uptake magnesium or whatever it is that we're looking at, and really help support that individual in a way that is absolutely right and balanced for that person. And so, as, as we know, no two people are the same. Symptoms can vary. And if we have an understanding maybe of, uh, I, I watched your conference um, at, uh, I was at the Autism One conference and I saw you talk uh, a year and a half ago and it was really going into some of these genetic pieces that if you know your child has this, you might understand why they have OCD that jumps up and down or why they can't sleep. Like some of the, the symptoms that, that are simple enough to look for and then some of the simpler solutions um, and know, having that knowledge, being able to help a parent understand or the doctor behind it understand why those symptoms are happening rather than just, um, again, going back to the natural, rather than just trying to drug something or treat it with a pharmaceutical drug to mask a symptom because you don't like the behavior, find out what's causing the behavior and then be able to do something to help balance it in the system. So can you tell us how these, these, uh, these SNPs, how do they affect our health? So I do want to say first, you know, our genes do not define us, right? And a lot of what is, you know, considered disease in this country or in this world is really an environmental implication, right? However, if we're looking at specific genes, like, for example, um, let's talk about the, one of my favorite genes is called COMPT, catechol-O-methyltransferase. And so the way that it works in the body is it kind of works like the um, garbage man of the, the nervous system. So it cleans up all the used up neurotransmitters. So if somebody has an imbalance in that gene, you know, the way I describe it to my patients, either they are like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh or they're like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. So if you know that you have that type of, of you know, person personality in an individual, you can support them. So if they're the ER type, right, then maybe what they're doing is they're using up too much of their serotonin or they're not making or manufacturing serotonin properly. So you can actually support serotonin in those individuals. For the individuals that are the Tigger types that are, you know, have, you know, high anxiety or high intensity or, or tend to kind of fly off the handle, you can help, you know, use different herbs and, and supplements to be able to modify that particular behavior. So you're absolutely right by looking at some somebody's unique and individual genetic profile, we can absolutely support what we're seeing based on, beha you know, behavior or symptom picture for that particular individual. And also knowing, too, if you know that your child has certain susceptibilities, and again, a gene has to be triggered by something uh, to be able to, you know, really be turned on, and because we can all have that blueprint, but it's a matter of what 
and there are a lot of environmental triggers today. We can get into some of the, of course, the toxins in the food, the toxins, the toxins in the air we breathe. Um, and knowing ahead of time, if your child is going to be more susceptible to uh, a, a, an insult from a vaccination, and knowing knowing that ahead of time could prevent a lot of, you know, a lot of further problems in the future. Oh, you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. And that's the other thing, too. Even, you know, there are lots of genes that are associated and correlated with vaccine injury, and that's been well reported. Um, But, you know, even just from a global standpoint, right, you know, because modern medicine says, how do we know if you're going to react from a vaccine until you get one and have a reaction? You know, that's useful. But, you know, there's a lot of things that we can use to prognosticate. Like if you're looking at, at the genetics around detox, right, how a body's able to eliminate toxins. That's through MTHFR or PON1 or any number of genes, right? So if you know that you have a child that has that particular gene expression, those children are not going to tolerate, you know, vaccines or, or anesthesia maybe in some cases or pharmaceutical medications in some cases, uh, dyes, uh, artificial flavors. And so all of those things are things that we can do proactively as parents to be able to support our children so they can be their best selves. For sure. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. We need to take a short break here, but when we come back, we'll talk about maybe a little bit of how we can get into learning about how we can find those things out about our children and and how we can learn more um, uh, to know those things ahead of time that you might be able to share with us. So uh, we need to take a short break. Again, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. We are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Please stay with us. We will be right. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. And I forgot at the beginning of the show to let you know that I've created a page for uh, some of the links that we may discuss in this episode. So after the show, you'll be able to find them at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash forward slash 28 and just the numbers 28. This is show number 28. Um, and we have Dr. Kendra Becker here with us today. And we're talking about SNPs or genetic SNPs and how they relate to autism. And so uh, before the break, we were talking about how you might be able to know. So Dr. Becker, can you kind of uh, just give us some background, like what a parent might be able to do to learn more about the genes that their children have? Sure. So, I mean, actually, modern technology has really helped us out here. I've been in practice almost 15 years, and when I first started in practice, the only way that you could get any genetic information about your patient was to do um, a a very narrow uh, look at specific SNPs that were related to how a body tolerates pharmaceutical medication. So that was maybe 10 or 15 SNPs. And that test was an out-of-pocket test that wasn't covered by insurance, and it was probably around upwards of $1,500. Now, anybody can go to a drugstore, Amazon, online, whatever, and order any sort of genetic test that you have access to your whole genome. So, of course, 23andMe has, you know, really the, the biggest and most notoriety. It's a nice test. You know, it can be done with saliva, so it's an easy test for even a young child to do, and you get a good amount of your genome. However, when 23andMe first came out and all of us that did a bunch of genetic medicine, we all ran out and did our 23andMe testing. And so it was, you know, I have access to whether or not I have BRCA genes and genes for Alzheimer's and things like that, and that was all readily available. And then, of course, the FDA started chasing around the company, and they ended up removing those genes from 
from their assay. And then within the last couple of years, uh, 23andMe was sold, and I can't remember to who, but basically they, they ended up in a partnership with a pharmaceutical company, and they're using the 23andMe information for what's called data mining. So they're allegedly de-identifying the data and then sending over everybody's genome to these companies so that the, the pharmaceutical companies basically can make better drugs. You know, they can look at what, what is present in the, in, you know, globally in the genome and be able to make drugs that, that are, you know, easily tolerated by those types of people and demographic. So I'm not a huge fan of 23andMe because also in that process, what they did is they ended up taking out about 400 SNPs that were really important to those of us in holistic medicine that were actually looking to, you know, support body processes and be able to help heal and recover in individuals from disease. So, um, and then they added like about 500 SNPs that were mostly associated with stuff that could be modulated by a pharmaceutical drug. So. 23andMe is an option. It is a very inexpensive test. I think it's somewhere between $49 and $89. The other test that you can do that's widely available is Ancestry.com. They do also a pretty good job. They're, they're um, less, or at least there isn't much as far as disclosures about data mining, and they give you a few more um, pieces of information as far as health SNPs. So that's generally my recommendation. However, there are dozens of small outfit companies that are now, you know, coming on the scene that are absolutely promoting themselves as companies that say, you can have your data, but we are not sharing this data with anybody else. So, you know, those kinds of confidentiality things I think are really important. So it really is up to you, you know, what you want to do, but there is an inexpensive way to be able to get that information. So once you do the, the, te the test, you, spill, you um, spit your saliva into a little uh, test tube send it off to the lab in a couple weeks, you get an email that your whole genome is ready. From there, that's really when the work begins. And so depending on what my patients are looking for, what I will have them do is download their whole genome. They can have all the, the SNPs that the company has tested for and they can keep it, you know, on their laptop or on a stick in their, in their safe or whatever. That information then gets uploaded into any variety of software so a doctor like me who's looking for health stuff can actually read and interpret the data without going through 888 pages of information trying to figure out which SNPs you're looking at on chromosome 1, 2, 3, or 4. So um, that's generally my recommendation. And, and I think this is something that can be abundantly useful for anybody who's got, you know, kids that are sick or even kids that are healthy. Because there, there are certain things in our genome that, again, our genes do not define us, but if we know that they are, you know, possible or probable or maybe expressing, that we can support them in a particular way to maintain our health for the best that it could be. Yeah, that's great information, especially about some of the uh, the the testing companies, and it's good to know um, that you can research, research out your own and that these softwares exist to, because some of those pages are, like you said, 800 pages. A parent's just looking at them going, well, what does this mean? You have to have somebody who is knowledgeable to help you understand what those things mean. Um, and and we can talk about a couple. The MTHFR um, methylation is such a big deal with children with autism. And, uh, and obviously, parents with children with autism, if they already have those 
those symptoms or many various symptoms. Again, it's a spectrum, so the, the symptoms vary. But we are able to look at our child and might be able to understand even without the testing saying, all right, I can tell my, my child has OCD, OCD that comes and goes really quickly. Uh, is that, you know, is that a symptom of the, the pans or strep issue or is that something else that's going on with, the, uh, with you know, we can talk about, you know, some of the histamine reactions and there's just an abundance of information to, to share here. So what do you think is, um, is something else that we could look at, maybe, um, maybe talk a little bit about methylation? Oh, absolutely. My favorite. And methylation, <laughs> you're absolutely right, it's huge. It's huge with anybody uh, on the spectrum, period, end of story. And it really comes down to a really basic tenant and concept, right, is that when your methylation is impaired, you cannot detox toxicity. As a little kid, if you're holding toxicity in your body, you are going to set off, you know, the old famous uh, cell danger response, right? The body is going to get a, a signal saying that something is wrong and, and out of balance in that particular individual. When that happens, you get a whole immune, immunologic cascade, and the body's looking to do something with that toxicity. So basically what it does is it walls it off and sticks it in your fat. And so, you know, most of us as adults, we've got plenty of storage room, but little kids, the fattiest place in their bodies is their brain. So that's why, you know, there's a, you know, your, your tenants for healing are absolutely amazing. You know, they work, um, you're absolutely right, 100% where you have to kind of heal and seal the gut, heal and seal the brain, you have to deal with the co-infections. And, you know, the way that you have to do that is you absolutely have to start with getting your methylation working, Right. So, you know, we could end the podcast here, but we would leave a ton of people hanging. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are a a thousand people or more on the other end of this listening saying, well, I already tried to work on my methylation or my child's methylation, and we got nowhere. And you are absolutely right, because everybody is a little different. So, you know, 15 years ago when I started and you had people that were positive for MTHFR, we gave them five milligrams of folic acid, myself included. And the research then, 15 years ago, was, oh, you just blow through that folic acid pathway. You know, they'll absorb something at some point. No big deal. It wasn't until about 12 years ago when the research started coming out showing that people that have MTHFR that you give folic acid to actually, again, creates a similar cell danger response. You get an immunologic reaction, and you get a ton of inflammation in the bloodstream, and you can block up the folate receptors and not have any communication whatsoever inside the cell. So what we have to do for methylation, number one, is we have to see where that individual is, you know, with regard to their methylation, and we have to support them appropriately. You know, we can't just throw, you know, methylfolate or B12 at these people, because a lot of times that can make their symptoms way worse. So depending on where they're at and what they're really struggling with depends on how you're going to actually approach that particular case. And with methylation, the SNPs or genetic SNPs, or we want to look at all the, the the SNPs, not just one, because there are multiples that are affected with methylation. That is that correct? Oh yes, ab- absolutely. More than probably anything else, because methylation it really is an intricate part in almost every other cell cell system in the body, every other metabolic pathway. 
So you're absolutely right. So even though MTHFR is the enzyme that converts uh, folic acid to the, the usable form of folate, methylfolate, there are, you know, all types of other SNPs in those pathways that make a huge difference. And then you also have to remember, you know, like I talked about a little earlier with the COMT, the catechol-O-methyl transferase, if that gene is impaired or upregulated and you're not, you know, removing those uh, used up neurotransmitters properly and your body has some sort of, of you know, bottleneck and you can't actually detox toxicity, that's also going to get jammed up in your liver. Or, you know, PON1, which is a gene that helps our bodies eliminate organophosphates. And so if we can't eliminate organophosphates, then that again is also going to get jammed up in the body and create a cell danger response. So you are absolutely right. I mean, you have to look at, at multiple, multiple pathways and ultimately you have to treat your patient. You know what I mean? You have to treat the patient that's sitting there in front of you. And I think that's something that uh, a lot of doctors even today kind of forget. They want to look at the methylation pathways. They want to treat or fix what they know is wrong. And in some cases that can make somebody sicker. And uh, I believe we we actually need to take a, a short break here, but that's a, a really good thing for us to move into the, the toxicity issues and, and things that we can do to help our children detoxify better and the, some of the, the solutions that are involved. So we need to take a short break here. Uh, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Stay with us. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Thank you for being here today. We are talking with Dr. Kendra Becker about SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms, what that means for you are genetic susceptibilities and how they relate to autism. Is that what we're talking about today? And uh, the MTHFR gene is something that uh, a lot of people have heard about. Uh, it's uh, it's something that has a lot to do with um, the methylation pathways. And I'll link to a couple other shows that I have interviewed other experts on methylation uh, in the past so you can get even more details about that. But um, why don't we talk a little bit about um, the toxicity issue? And I know that um, we need to be able to produce things like glutathione, the body's master antioxidant, and sometimes the body is hindered in doing so because of this methylation pathway or the MTHFR gene having um, some, basically some problems. It's not working properly. So Dr. Berger, can you talk a little bit about that for us? Sure. You are absolutely right. I mean, we all need glutathione. People that are positive for MTHFR and are, are expressing that gene do not make glutathione well, or maybe even at all. We know that we need glutathione to inhibit cellular aging. And even though, you know, when you get into the very cool over 40 club, you know, aging to us is, you know, gray hair and wrinkles. But really, you know, in our kids with autism in particular, you know, cell aging or, you know, oxidative stress is a huge issue. So certainly getting glutathione into them is, is incredibly beneficial. However, glutathione is a huge methyl donor, right? It has huge methyl groups that are, make up the glutathione. So somebody who is methyl sensitive, who is not methylating well, who has a couple of other genes in those pathways can certainly be very sensitive to glutathione and in some cases it can make them sick. So we have to be really careful and, you know, it all depends on, on where your patient is. You know, I've done everything from giving patients IV glutathione, you know, recommending, I don't do the IV in my office, but recommending IV glutathione to doing something like having patients, you know, walk through the grass at home and, you know, rubbing zeolite on the bottom of their feet because they're that sensitive and they can't even tolerate, you know, taking zeolite in by mouth. 
So, you know, when you can figure out, you know, by looking at the genetics, looking, you know, I also look at a lot of lab work too, because, you know, implications as to how the, you know, as you said too, the co-infections, adrenal function, nutrient levels and things like that can have a huge, you know, uh, bearing on how the body uptakes and utilizes glutathione. So in some cases, you have to be very, very gentle with these patients and move very, very slowly. But ultimately, the goal is let's get some glutathione in these kids. And anything that we can do to increase that is, is you know, be, you know, most beneficial. And so sometimes we use supplements. Sometimes we recommend specific foods, you know, that are glutathione rich. Sometimes we can use a lipolyzer or a topical glutathione. And sometimes we just have to give the components and hope the body can make their own glutathione once we get the methylation working. And, you know, by looking at individual genes and genes and pathways, you know, sometimes we can support those really easily with some supplements to be able to help those individuals get their methylation working so that we can get the glutathione levels up. Right. And sometimes, you know, of course, children with autism especially need methyl B12. And I always really uh, press methyl B12 because it's a a different type of B12 and it's more bioabsorbable. But if you've got problems with methylation, you you can be very sensitive to it. And sometimes you need to start out at extremely low doses of it or mix it up with maybe a... um, uh, hydroxy B12 or something that, that they can just sort of like just like drops of it per day just to slowly work your way up. Otherwise, I've got a lot of parents in my program who've seen it and I teach muscle testing in my program so they know a little bit about whether it's okay for body acceptability and if it's uh, if what dosages need to ha- need to happen today because every day changes as well but especially the beginning dosages and sometimes you might give your child methyl B12 and how great it is but if you don't know some of these things or these sensitivity issues that your child may or may not have then if they do have it then the child can I always say go off the rails they just kind of start just going crazy in the house and the parents are like what is going on and it's because they really can't take the the their body can't handle that much methyl B12 because the methylation pathway isn't set up for it before, you know, gut healing has taken place or, or even just before the pathway has healed up a little bit. So what, what do you do in that case? What are you, what's your sort of common practice with the starting dosages and things so like I that? Do- I do use hydroxy and uh, adenosyl B12 if the patient will tolerate it. Sometimes you can't. Like you can't use uh, B6, 9, or 12 in these patients because they're so methyl sensitive. So sometimes I will start with B1 and B2. So I have a patient, it took me nine months to get her to tolerate 400 mics of methylfolate. You know what I mean? Wow. So, mm-hmm. and sometimes you just have to, you just have to work that fully with people. So um, sometimes I'll alternate B1 and B2. Sometimes patients can't even tolerate that. Um, and, I, you know, I wrote a blog um, only because of my own personal experience with something called methyl trapping, which is basically what you just described, Karen, where, you know, you give somebody some, some B12 of some sort that will help support methylation. And what happens is, is those methyl groups get stuck basically inside the cell. So the cell reaction is, is kind of repetitive and you don't actually eliminate the methyl B12 from your cell. And that certainly can make you feel really anxious, angry, violent, you know, any number of symptoms. And so that, that is very real for people. 
So in that right. case, sometimes you can use a little niacin to antidote that. And in, you know, in my autistic uh, population, what I find is most of those kids are so constitutionally sensitive that a lot of times I, I use topical niacinamide on, on the skin. Like I'll use a cream to just be able to move that B12 out really quickly. Um, in other cases, I have used things like zeolite or, you know, liquid trace minerals and, um, you know, stuff like that just if we can slowly start getting the cogwheels of the methylation pathway moving and that way get to that patient to a place where they can start tolerating, you know, methyl B12. Because you're absolutely right. We all need methyl B12 in order to heal ourselves. So it's just a matter of the delivery system based on what that patient is. But, you know, like you, you know, I'm one of those people that's of the philosophy that, you know, if we can fix the gut, right, if we can heal and seal the gut and eat an optimal diet, then the bulk of what we should be getting from our nutrients should be coming from our food, and we should be able to minimize or maybe even eliminate, in most cases, supplements. And so that's what I find to be, you know, most abundantly useful is a lot of times, even though I have patients, you know, the co-infections are a little different. Those are, those are definitely a force to be reckoned with. But even in patients that are so profoundly sensitive from a methylation standpoint or have comped up regulation or something else that's really triggering their body into an anxious state or a state of a lot of pain, a lot of times with those patients, what I do is I start with very, very aggressive. I call it aggressive, but it's not really gut healing, and I use a ton of immunoglobulins and a ton of probiotics and anything that I can get into that patient that they will tolerate to be able to heal and feel their gut. Yeah, gut healing is so important. It's it's definitely stage one. I think everybody needs to know about the, the right kind of diet. Because there's so many things that people think that they're doing. If, if it's just gluten-free and casein-free, that that's not, and, and that's, that that's good enough, but it, it's not. There's so many things with the processed carbs feeding, the overgrowth of the candida and the yeast, and, and the, the holes that are, uh, you know, leaky gut issues that are happening in the gut. So there's so much there. And I, we have to take a short break here real quick, but um, we're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Stay with us. We will. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media. And today we have Dr. Kendra Becker-Musante with us, and we are talking about SNPs, or genetic SNPs, and susceptibility to autism. Before the last break, we started talking a little bit um, about gut healing, and I thought it would be important to continue that uh, to some degree, because gut healing is extremely important for children with autism. And uh, I, I do even have parents that write in sometimes, and they'll say, you know, I've I've read these things and heard it's important, but my husband or my my spouse won't doesn't believe me, and they still want to they they say it doesn't matter, and or they think it's okay to just start you know, and and I just have to stress the importance of the right diet and. I discussed that in the free workshop that I mentioned at the at the beginning of, of this uh, the show, and I will link to it uh, at the um, on the page at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash twenty eight, where you'll be able to find links for this show. But uh, Dr. Masandi uh, or Dr. Becker, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about um, about a little bit more about gut healing? Do you have something that you'd like to share about that? Oh, absolutely. Actually, I think one of the lectures I'm giving at Autism One in the newly diagnosed track is about, you know, special healing diet, because I absolutely agree that people sometimes miss the mark. And, you know, for me, it almost hurts my heart a little bit because I have such full faith in, in nature and nature medicine. And then when patients come to me and they say, oh, I tried, you know, a healing diet and it didn't work, then that's when the conversation gets expanded to find out what exactly they're doing. 
Mm-hmm. And so for me in my practice, you know, I recommend there's three diets that I use a lot. And now it doesn't mean that that is exclusive to my practice, but those are the three that I recommend quite often. One of them, of course, is the paleo diet, right? Because if you've got a kid with leaky gut, you know, you've got to eliminate the lectins and the phytates. And so by eliminating the whole class of grains and using, a, you know, kind of a, a meat and, uh, you know, good, healthy fat and vegetable based diet, like a paleo diet is, that can be abundantly helpful with gut healing. And it also tends to be really, really nourishing to the adrenal. So, and the beauty, as you know, of a paleo diet is, is all the food is natural and normal and rock. You know, and, and so I do a lot of lecturing in the community about healthy eating, and I'm like, oh, if it has a coupon, it, you can't buy it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> there aren't coupons. <laughs> there aren't coupons for organic grass-fed beef or organic, you know, uh, vegetables and produce. So it's just like that's how you know what you need to eat and what you don't need to eat. But that's a really great diet, and I've had very good luck because it's, it's a nice, flexible diet. Um you know, for kids, you know, and especially the ones that are grazers to be able to kind of eat all day long. So that I've had very, very good luck with, especially for kids that do have a lot of gut sensitivities and have, you know, a lot of oral motor motor stuff as far as texture and things like that. The paleo diet can absolutely accommodate that. The other diet that I use a lot in my office is uh, the anti-inflammatory diet, right? So if you have a kid, you know, that looks like, you know, what I call in my practice brain on fire, where a lot of their inflammation is in their brain, uh, using an anti-inflammatory diet is abundantly helpful. It, it reduces any of the food triggers that could be inflammatory in the body. So we get rid of dairy, wheat, corn, soy, sugars, fake sugars. We get rid of the nightshade family. And as you know, the beauty of the anti-inflammatory diet is they talk a little bit about food combining. You know, foods should be, you know, prepared and then eaten at kind of like a room-ish temperature. They shouldn't be overly hot or overly cold. You should be eating your fruits like two hours away from any of the other foods that you're eating. You know, fats should always accommodate. There are grains that are included on the anti-inflammatory diet, but fats should always be, or grains should always be accompanied by fats. And so there are some really amazing tenants for that that really help reduce and, you know, eliminate inflammation in our gut. And as we know, the microbiome, as we heal that, we heal the microbiome in our brain. So that seems to be really useful. And then, of course, you know, the world-famous GAPS diet that was, you know, the original study was was kind of cultivated on, you know, kids with anxiety and um, ADHD and autism. And, you know, the reset on that, you know, because GAPS stands for gut and uh, psychology syndrome, it really is a diet that is highly, highly focused on resetting the gut microbiome and the brain. Now, as you know, the GAP diet, however, comes with some challenges because if the gut is very inflamed and there's a histamine problem, right, or you're overexpressing your DAO enzyme because your SNPs don't support, you know, proper DAO manufacturing, then what ends up happening with those people on a GAP diet because they're eating a lot of fermented foods to be able to, you know, reset and reseed the microbiome, sometimes they can be really symptomatic. So that's, you know, for anybody who's looking into the GAPS diet, just please make sure that you have a provider that you can, that will really hold your hand and walk you through exactly what you need for that because there are very, very specific tenets and steps that you have to follow. But again, it can be so useful for gut healing. And, you know, all three of those things, you know, the, the, all three of those diets that we just talked about, Karen, as you know, didn't include a single supplement, right? I mean, we can do a lot of our healing with diet and diet is really a, a huge part of it. 
the supplements are much more like a bridge to be able to get from point A to point B. And that's how I tend to use them in my office, especially because you run the risk of somebody not being able to tolerate something that you give them. So with food, that generally is not the case. Right. And that's what I always uh, have as the goal is to basically get the body working at optimum so it can it can do everything it needs to on its own without the extra supplementation. And again, like using it as a a bridge, which is the, the perfect analogy for it. We need to take a short break right here, but stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we are talking about genetic SNPs or susceptibilities and autism with uh, with genetics with Dr. Kendra Becker. And we were just discussing diet before the break and uh, some various options for diet. And, and uh, Dr. Becker, you mentioned histamines. And I know that that is a, a, another really important uh, aspect for parents to, to be aware of and the different reactions that can come from it and things that we can do. So would you mind talking a little bit about histamine reactions and, and histamines in general? No, absolutely. And you're, you're absolutely right. And what's interesting about histamines, especially if they're gut mediated, as you know, they can be a delayed hypersensitivity. So a child can, you know, consume a food or a supplement or whatever and not have a reaction for up to 72 hours after the consumption of that food. So to try to track what your child is reacting to becomes this maddening exercise in futility. So um, interestingly enough, when I first started kind of diving into the genetic stuff, I was using this supplement almost like a crutch, and it was a DAO blocker. So basically what it did is it blocked the the body's ability to – it actually enhanced the uh, body's ability to break down histamine. So lo and behold, I do great with this supplement. I have patients who move out of the area who are still calling my office to get refills because they love it and they feel so great. So fast forward about four years ago – Um, the U.S. lost the patent to this particular supplement, and I was no longer able to get it. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to end up going out of business. Like, this was how I treated histamine problems in patients for, uh, like, a decade. So I I had interviewed a couple of supplement reps. I had talked to several doctors about what they were doing if they couldn't, you know, block the degradation of the histamine in the body. And so um, there was some research that had recently come out about using hyperimmunized eggs, which I know is super popular, you know, which I had used for years, you know, to treat pans and pandas, right? You know, it helps heal and seal the leaky blood-brain barrier. I mean, that's a slam dunk. But then when somebody had mentioned that there's tons of research that had come out that uh, that the immunoglobulins in the um, hyperimmunized eggs were incredibly beneficial for the gut and they reduced inflammation with gap junction and they helped uh, break down histamine really effectively, I really kind of moved away from that DAO blocker that I'd been using for years and started using immunoglobulins and um, hyperimmunized eggs, you know, a lot in, in treating the gut and modulating histamine. And so what's interesting is, is what it really does is it doesn't do anything to the histamine. It instead strengthens the, the cell walls um, and the cell, excuse me, the cell membranes in the, uh, in the gut, per, you know, when there's issues with gut permeability and help strengthen the, the gut wall. And so by doing that, you actually reduce the body's, you know, signaling for a cell danger response and heal the gut. 
so for me, I use a ton of immunoglobulins, and I'm also really, really careful with, you know, what I'm recommending as far as foods for my patients, because as you know, histamine is produced in basically two places in the body, the gut and the brain. And so if you have an inflammation response in the gut, you're going to have a very similar one in the brain. And so that looks very differently than, than the standard, you know, food reaction that somebody has with a blotchy face or a bellyache or diarrhea. And so I think it's really important to, you know, take a look at children with regard to histamine, you know, very closely. The problem is, however, as you know, is it's very difficult to test for. Number one, histamine is it's like a snapshot in the body. It's, it's, it's very quickly acting because it's, it's kind of like a tertiary response to foreign invaders. And so you can't really, you know, you don't want it in the blood, right? And so to do blood work on a child or on an adult, you know, it doesn't really serve you. The other problem is, is that, you know, you're really looking for that gut-mediated reaction. So it's very difficult to kind of get in there in that moment of the reaction and, you know, take a GI biopsy or, or have, you know, a, a GI camera down there to see exactly the cell's reaction. So, you know, a lot of times identifying a histamine intolerance or a histamine response comes from, you know, a very comprehensive evaluation and, and open dialogue with your provider and really a lot of trial and error. But, you know, don't give up because it is so important. Once you get that histamine under control, then the body really starts healing because it's the histamine that actually can damage those cells, and that's not what we want to happen. And another thing, too, is knowing with, you know, kind of a, an antihistamine diet, there are specific foods that uh, that tend to be a little bit more on the higher trigger end. And if you know about those, it's helpful. And um, same thing with, again, sort of back to muscle testing. You can test your child for not only a, a supplement, but you can test them for foods. Um, and I'll also link to a, a past episode I did on natural allergy elimination as well. Um, although the gut mm-hmm. needs to have some healing work done so that you're, you're not just redeveloping. Um, these these allergies that are basically acquired because your immune system is responding to what they see as an, what it sees as an attack. So you end up with these, all of these allergies, all of these foods that you really don't necessarily genetically have. You you've, you've acquired them because your immune system has been responding. Um, so um, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And as you know, what can end up happening when you have a heightened histamine response in the gut and you're eating a food in a certain class because of the metabolic properties of some of the other foods in that particular class, you can start cross reacting to those foods too. So people that have histamine intolerance feel like, you know, they ate an orange on Monday and by Wednesday they didn't tolerate it. You know, it's, it's so terrible. So absolutely trying to figure out and identify your triggers and very, very quickly trying to heal the gut makes a huge difference with these patients for sure. Mm-hmm. And so um, why do, um, I know there are some things that, that can also be done to help balancing out. Like if you're noticing your child's got certain reactions uh, to, uh, I know that uh, OCD is a big one, um, jumping up and down without the instability of mood. Um, and I know that you've got some great solutions that you offer uh, or share. So, um, And then also I know another big, big one for for parents is, is puberty. We see, and this happened with my own son, things were going well. I did a lot of gut healing work at that point. He was, and he got to puberty and bam, it was like, almost like I was starting over. Like, what happened? But it was it, not as bad as it had been, but there was definitely, uh, I saw the trigger and I, and, you know, being a male, he was, you know, that the testosterone can really, if there's, of course, still mercury in the system as well, mercury and testosterone together, like, you know, putting a dynamite in a match together. But, um, so maybe we could uh, discuss um, 
a couple of the solutions and the things that you have found with, you know, and parents are really curious about puberty a lot. So if you can maybe touch on that and then and look in, and we can talk about a few solutions. Sure, absolutely. So as you know, the problem with puberty is that, you know, none of these kids come with, a you know, any kind of manual as to how this all works. And with puberty, the hormones kind of come and go sometimes most of the time when we least expect it. And so, you know, what I say for a lot of my patients that are kind of coming up on that precipice is to really, you know, I do a lot of lab work with those kids just to kind of track where they're at with regard to pubertal growth spurts and, and you know, hormones and things like that. But, uh, you know, what can be really good is to just support the body with with foods that we know can kind of stop up some of those estrogens and, and testosterones and things like that. The other thing that can be really helpful during puberty is to make sure that the adrenals and the thyroid are working properly. You know, unfortunately, we don't have any kind of prediction as to, you know, when those hormones start coursing through, you know, these children's bodies. And certainly with autism, you, you get less of an indicator because it can be kind of this, you know, switch that's been flipped on. But, you know, what I like to do is, you know, I keep diets really, really clean with those kids. And in a lot of cases, I boost up their probiotics because, again, if we have the right balance of our microbiome, we should have some additional support in our gut to be able to stop up those hormones. And the other things I do, particularly for the girls, which tend to be really, um, tend to really enjoy it, is I highly recommend castor oil packs. So, which, you know, for those of you who don't know, that's traditional, you know, uh, naturopathic medicine. You put, basically, you put castor oil um, in a pack on your skin on the outside of your body, and then you put a heat pack or a heating pad on top of that, and the castor oil can get through the skin and help tonify organs. And so, generally, with those girls, um, I recommend that they, the girls do it either over their liver or over their ovaries and uterus. And that tends to be really, really helpful. And, um, you know, I'm not sure... Yeah, I mean, I understand the mechanism, but I don't know why in, in the autism population in my practice that's been so abundantly helpful. But I invite all of you to try it because it tends to be really useful. And the other thing is, is I think it's, it's more of, you know, an open, you know, you have to have kind of an open conversation with, you know, kids that can express themselves. And you just have to try to figure out where they're coming from because the other thing that I found, too, is there is a bit of a knowledge deficit and kids didn't even understand what, what was happening to their body. And so for me, I tend to be really frank with the kids in my practice. The mothers really appreciate that. And so <laughs> understanding can make a huge difference for these kids, huge that is important. I mean, even if a child's nonverbal, they really understand things if you if you speak to them and and just letting them know that they're involved rather than we're just trying to, you know, sort of uh, control a situation or control them or just take over um, to explain to mm -hmm. them. Um, uh, you know, when I remember when I had my my son uh, had a a brain uh, imaging done. And when he actually saw the picture of, of something, you know, being slightly askew, we were able to, he was, had a visual, it, it completely changed his way because we weren't trying to, it's very important. We don't, we don't want these kids to think something's wrong with them or they're weird or they're, it's just that they have right. some biological health needs and we are working to balance those. So that's kind of the, the most gentle way to, to just say it to them. And that, you know, you can explain yeah. what a castor oil is a pack. It's going to help to pull out the toxins. I've used castor oil packs for decades. Mm -hmm. I, I think they're a fabulous, fabulous thing to do. Um, they and then are. I know that you use, um, uh, you have found that B2 riboflavin helps to, to stabilize moods as well with there's the methylation instability. So um, B, how, when do you use B2? So I use B2 and I use B6 also for mood stability. 
And um, I use it, you know, depending on when um, I'm seeing the the patient in the office and how their moods are actually expressing. So any, you know, if I have kids that kind of get real wound up with OCD type symptoms or anxiety that's real cyclical, I've had very good luck with um, B2. The other thing is, is sometimes what I found, particularly in my autistic population, what happens is, is the children are actually experiencing anxiety, but it actually manifests in physical symptoms like dizziness, headache, and whatnot. Those kids also do really, really well with B2. Um, and sometimes I use B2 and I'll also use a little bit of uh, zeolighter or charcoal or even some bentonite clay because the combination of the two of them together. Now, as you know, you don't give zeolite, charcoal, or bentonite clay with anything else. But when you give them at the same time, so you'll give the B2 perhaps in the morning and the zeolite in the, at night, that helps kind of stop up those extra hormones, especially if the adrenals are working pretty well and able, you're able to stabilize mood. So that tends to be really effective as well. Mm-hmm. And I use a lot of topical. You know, for me, uh, you know, I don't mess around too much with, you know, by mouth dosing. I'd rather get patients stable on a, with a topical dose and then be able to switch them to something by mouth. So that's another good tip, too, is to just use, a top, you know, topical B vitamins. You know, you can titrate the dose so much easier. For all Bs, or like methyl B12 as well, or are you talking mostly B2 and 6? Mostly B2 and B6. Methyl B12 I do use topically, but that I tend to dose, um, you know, I'm pretty, you know, just because of my experience, I, I have a pretty good sense of how to dose B12 by mouth. And, you know, the digestion of B12 starts in the mouth, so I do try to give that orally as much as possible. But I do have mm-hmm. topical B12 that I have, you know, for a number of reasons, for sure. Right. I find sublinguals to be really helpful, too, because then the gut's not having to digest it. Anything we can really keep out of the gut having to do the work for is really helpful, because if the gut's not working properly, it doesn't doesn't make sense to put a bunch of supplements in there anyway. Um, and then Absolutely. also, the um, the... The, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people ask about this one too, um, calcium. So calcium supplements, you know, they'll find their child's low in calcium and they'll want to say, okay, so what can I do? What calcium supplement do you recommend? And I don't, I, I, I listen to your talk as well. You seem to agree right on the same lines that we don't want to just put a bunch of calcium in the body. Most of the kids are magnesium deficient. And if we can get the calcium from their vegetable sources, their food sources, then, um, and again, not dairy as we want to eliminate cow's milk but other food sources that have calcium um, to help balancing that. So would you talk, uh, uh, we just have a couple minutes left, but if you could just talk about um, a little bit with, with uh, your, your ideas on calcium. Well, I, my ideas are the same as yours, absolutely. I don't ever, ever give calcium supplements to anybody who doesn't have a menstrual cycle. You know, there are very rare occasions where um, a woman who's trying to conceive or who is pregnant may need a small amount of supplemental calcium. But for the most part, I completely agree with you. My, my recommendation is to get calcium-rich foods, you know, which generally tend to be green vegetables and almonds and, and foods like that because, as you know, the dairy the calcium in dairy is not bioavailable to human bodies. And what I do instead with my patients is, again, keep their vitamin D level therapeutic because vitamin D works more like a hormone to modulate and upregulate calcium absorption. Hi there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just told we are out of time, and I apologize for that. We have so much great information here with Dr. Becker. And uh, Dr. Becker has agreed to come back on the show in the future because uh, we can continue some of these great discussions. And uh, all the links that you'll find for the show will be at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 28. Thanks 